This is episode 214 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Hanging Out with Ben Vaughn. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we'd like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. Well, do I have a treat for you today? I hope I'm not too starstruck to run the equipment here because I have Ben Vaughn with us and Bill Aho is here as well. Uh, so welcome, Ben and Bill. Thank you. You're starstruck because Bill is there? Is that what's happening? <laughs> that, that's what's happening. Yeah. You're sorry to inform you your second fiddle today. Well, I'm feeling it too. So <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Bill vibe. <laughs> Great. Yeah, right. it's pretty. It's pretty strong. I'll, I'll step back a little bit, guys. It'll be okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be courteous. Yeah, just be a I little smaller. I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah, I would appreciate that. It's a little too intense. <laughs> the glow. All right, let me introduce Ben. Uh, so Ben Vaughn is having, in his words, a very interesting career. He grew up in Philadelphia. His official bio says his uncle gave him a Dwayne Eddy record and forever changed his life. And so I did have to go check out Dwayne Eddy. And indeed, you can see the influence, which is really fun. He formed the Ben Vaughn Combo and began re releasing albums, one of which was Beautiful Thing in 1987, which garnered this review from the Philadelphia Daily News, which really struck me as right. Clever, evocative new songs in a time-honored, timeless style. And they wrote that the band has a slap-happy simplicity and ragged enthusiasm that's anachronistic, that seems a throwback to the 1950s rockabilly era of Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, and the Big Bopper. In 1988, he began working solo and was just prolific, releasing an album nearly every year for 10 years, uh, including Rambler 65 in 1997, on which he played all the instruments and which was recorded inside his car, a 1965 Rambler American. Since then, he's done so much stuff, I can't even list it all. 
producing other people's records, releasing records of his own. I think you're up to 20 some now, scoring films, writing for his blog, guest appearances on two of my favorites, Fresh Air and World Cafe. He was the composer for Third Rock from the Sun and a ton of other TV shows and films. He has a syndicated radio show, The Many Moons of Ben Vaughn, and still tours in the U.S. So welcome, Ben. Very nice to have you. I'm very happy to be here. I need a nap after hearing that, though. That's, um, <laughs> how many How many albums? <laughs> I, I know. Wow. <laughs> You've been a busy yes. person. Yeah, and I've been around a long time, too. That's also what that proves. But it's great to be talking to you guys. Uh, ben, you've done, as, as Jennifer mentioned, there are lots of different things in your career, from the movies, TV scores, solo, band, combo, producing. Do you have a preference of one or the other? Uh, I really don't. I really don't. I jump around a lot. I've always um, been attracted to people who do more than one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like Johnny Otis, for example, you know, a band leader songwriter, played drums, played vibes, was a talent scout, owned a record label. He actually had chicken coops in his backyard and Watts. And, you know, I mean, he, he had every, he ran for city council or something and then he became a preacher, all of this in one career. <laughs> and uh, I've always looked at people like that, Orson Welles or whoever, who, who mm-hmm. just don't care about crossing lines into various talents. That's great. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage, I think, right? To me, it would take courage not to do that because mm-hmm. it would be that would be a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, I indulge. I don't know. It's 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 just the natural way for me to go. I uh, you know when I when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a radio DJ before I wanted to be a musician, which uh-huh. I eventually did become a radio DJ. So, if it has something to do with music, I want to be there. Mm-hmm. We're, we're lucky that you're, you're doing that for us, giving us music and giving us great things for TV, movies, and producing people. That's We're really, as fans, very happy about that. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, um, you know, the minute I hear a piece of music I like, the first my first feeling is, who can I share this with? Mm. It's always been that way. I'm just so excited about music all the time that I just want to share it. And, you know, the fact that, 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 that you get it makes me very happy. During COVID, now I, I follow you on Facebook, and you, you would do lots of performances out in your yard, just doing songs yourself. And, you know, that was a great fun for me to be able to watch it, and I think for lots of other people. It was a, really a great way for you to interject good feelings in a tough time. And I just want to thank you for that. And and what kind of inspired you to, just to go out there and do these little solo songs? Well, I, I started seeing some people put some videos up. They were doing live uh, videos and, and things. And I thought, you know what? The production value on this stuff, I have this amazing landscape behind my house in a desert. Mm-hmm. All I need to do is stand in front of this and it's instant production. It's like Lawrence of Arabia. Or <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm in the desert and it's a beautiful view back there. So I figured if I just stand here with my guitar and the sound out there, it's so quiet out there. There's, yeah. It's like acoustically dead, almost like a control room or, or you know, a, a voiceover booth or something mm-hmm. because there's no humidity. So because of the dry air, the sound is flat. You clap your hands. You don't, it doesn't, you don't hear it travel. Mm-hmm. So I was able to just get an iPhone and stick it on top of a shelf 
and stand in front of it with my guitar and get perfect audio, like no microphones, no clip mics and no mixing afterwards. It was like until the wind showed up. And then when the wind showed up, I had to stop because there is no windscreen on a cell phone. And I tried a couple of things. I got some foam rubber and I tried to invent the perfect iPhone windscreen, mm-hmm. which I you know, was thinking I would patent. Mm-hmm. Sort of like liquid paper, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can always hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then my son can, can join the monkeys. I don't know. But I just could I you know, I just had to stop when it when it got windy. Uh, I'm I'm I got a lot of great responses. Mm-hmm. It was such a tough time before the vaccine because we didn't know where this was going. Yeah. We had no idea where this was going and people were dying. Literally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so playing a song on guitar in a, in a natural environment, no muss, no fuss, and putting it out there, um, I wasn't aware at first how comforting that was, but I got a lot of, you know, I got a really mm-hmm. positive reaction. So it, was, it worked, you know, for me and for other people, it was great. I think that's something about your music that it does really evoke good feelings. And sometimes for me, it's because of the humor in the songs, or at least what I perceive as humor in the songs. And the first album of yours that I got was Dressed in Black, which has a bunch of my favorite songs in there. Um, Don't Say You Don't Wanna, which is really fun. And then Big Drum Sound, which I've actually used on a couple of mixtapes. Yeah, Big Drum Sound. um, My baby loves the big drum sound. I'm probably messing up the lyrics here. Uh, She's got to have it in the morning. She's got to have it in the evening. It's just such a fun song. But do those, I was curious to ask you, so for those kinds of songs, is it still fun for you to play them or does it get kind of old over time? Um, it's, it's a lot of fun to play them in front of audiences because um, especially, you know, when there are people in the audience who, who have never seen me before and never heard those songs, mm. it's amazing to watch the conversion because they're like, okay, you know, this guy's up there, he's doing his thing. And all of a sudden they're like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> for the reason- I, I live for that reveal. You know, I prefer playing in front of audiences who've never heard of me. I just did a um, a cameo with a band called Deer Tick. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Deer Tick. They're a pretty big alternative band. And they came through L.A. And they, I've heard of them. Yeah, they played at the Fonda Theater. And they invited me to come up and do two songs. And so I did. And, you know, it's like probably 1,500 people who had never heard of me. Mm. And I just walk out there. And within halfway through the first song, I saw the recognition like, oh, okay, this guy's actually interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, I wasn't going to just look at my shoes and sing a song, a melancholy song. It's like something's going to happen here, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, I love that. I love that. And Big Drum Sound is a good example of that. That never fails even like a drunk passed out at the bar will wake up and go, Hey, what's this? <laughs> uh-huh. 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 Yeah. There's something really fresh about your songwriting, I think. Yeah. And, and it continues to be that way. I, yeah. So obviously I'm a big fan. Another song from that album, uh, which really struck me at the time and is one of the ones that you did out in the uh, desert is uh, too sensitive for this world. And I was thrilled to see you 
uh, sing that last year. How do you feel about that song now? Well, I wrote that song after my best friend died in the 80s, late 80s. um, And he uh, died of a heart attack at age 27. He had a heart condition he didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And that title, I had that title first and I thought it was going to be a funny song Mm. because it's kind of like a challenge. Too sensitive for this world. Oh, yeah. You know, who says, right? You know, there's kind of like a, uh, a potential for it to be glib or funny or something. Uh, like, this is not a contest here to see who's more sensitive, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the t- title was floating around in my mind as, as like a provocative title. And then my friend died and it, the song wrote itself. I don't remember writing it. I really was in the fog of grief when it happened. And I didn't show it to anyone for quite a while because I wasn't sure what I had. And then I finally recorded it. I played it for John Hyatt, actually. Oh. And uh, and he told me, he goes, that's that's heavy. That song's heavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I began to um, believe that that was true. And it's lasted all these years. And now uh, playing that song is more meaningful than it was it's more meaningful on a universal scale than i could ever imagined yeah. uh, it's um as a matter of fact deer tick the band i mentioned they they recorded that song on their latest album really how cool yeah yeah and they do a really nice version they, they really take it up at the end and the singer goes into uh, a higher octave and really lets it out and it's really good they, oh, they yeah. really do a nice job of it Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I, I, I mean, isn't that a testimony to its relevance now? Yeah, and it's one of those songs that when I perform it, I feel like I'm doing a cover. <laughs> That's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, like it's like it's bigger than me. Like I don't, I like I know I wrote it. Mm-hmm. You know, I have the you know the publishing information. <laughs> <laughs> That's <what you're> <laughs> well, at least. At least I claimed I wrote it anyway, and it, you know, but uh, it's been validated. Um, <laughs> but when I perform it, I feel like I'm 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 like playing some kind of standard song that's like yeah. "Let It Be" or th- or something. You know, it's interesting. I don't know. It's, it's uh, it just feels like it's it's bigger than I am. That song. It's a, it's a wonderful song, and, and so many of your songs are this great that way. Um, but a few minutes ago, you were talking about Liquid Paper and the Monkeys. I was wondering if you could share your Michael Nesmith story. <laughs> yeah, when when he died, everybody was sharing their stories, and I realized, oh, I have one. Um, mm. In the seventies, I was in this really weird country rock band that was more interested in smoking weed and drinking beer and rehearsing than actually going out and gigging. And our songs were very strange with bizarre lyrics. And a friend of mine convinced me that I should send a cassette of of my band to Michael Nesmith, who had a company called Pacific Arts Records at the time. Uh-huh. This would have been mid seventies. And I did, I was working as a landscaper at the time and I came home from work and um, the phone rings and I pick it up and um, the voice on the other end says, hi, this is Michael Nesmith. I love that cassette you sent me. <laughs> and I was certain it was a friend of mine messing with me. I was like, oh uh-huh. yeah, once you put the, once you put the wool, wool cap on and go, you know, whatever. I don't know what I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, prove it, buddy. I mean, 
<laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a New Jersey, I'm a New Jersey wise ass and I thought it was my friend. So I probably said something incredibly inappropriate. <laughs> and, and, uh, the voice on the other end laughed and said, you don't really think this is me, do you? And then I recognized the voice and I was like, Oh my God. So I did a quick course correction and, uh, saved myself. And he was interested in the tape. He thought we were really cool and he wanted to hear more stuff. And he, we talked about music in general for quite a while. And then he talked about the possibility of, of him producing us. And um, he wanted to hear more material. And I sent him more material. And my, but my band broke up right around the time I was sending him new material. And he was moving on to other projects. So it was one of those things where it, the timing was wasn't good but i probably had two or three conversations with him and the one thing that really impressed me i thanked him for checking out an unknown artist mm -hmm. like me and he said i listen to everything that comes across my desk yeah and i thought wow that's and that's what i do now like i get a lot of because uh, i've produced records so i get a lot of bands sending me stuff i I, I do them. I go, what would Michael Nesmith do? Yeah. <laughs> I listen to every single thing that comes across my desk and uh, it's because of him. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Right. Good role model. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good role model. Yeah. Business, business wise and as a creative person and a supporter of the arts, you know, listen to the person's stuff, give them a call. Even if the answer is no, let them know that they've been heard. Mm -hmm. It's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've worked with lots of talented people. Um, did any of them really surprise you? I mean, I know you worked with um, Alex Chilton and uh, Low Straight Jackets and things like people like that. So, it, did anybody really kind of jump to the forefront when you were when you were producing them? Uh, Charlie Feathers, uh, mainly because he pulled a gun on me in the studio. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Boy, make it make his point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not surprised by that. You're not surprised by anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you're truly jaded if that doesn't phase you. Exactly. Oh, here we go again. Oh boy, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like, oh, oh, this yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But Charlie was just trying to make a point. He um, he wanted the second half of his money because you know you you pay the artist half of their advance up front and then the other half on completion, and he wanted the other half now and. So I just calmly said to him, I said, Charlie, you know, if you kill me, you're never going to get that second half of that advance. <laughs> Think this through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He goes, you got a point there, son. <laughs> I, think, I think he did it just to show off around everybody else. You know, he, he was a very complicated, very unusual man and a, and a musical genius. And like Charlie Feathers, to him, rockabilly was not dead. It was still an art form worth exploring and worth looking into possible new variations almost like progressive rockabilly or something he was he was a real artist and an unusual person to go along with it which he proved more than once during those sessions but um i'd say he was probably the most surprising and maybe the most um he made a man out of me as a producer i'll tell you that much was that in nashville uh that was in memphis i heard stories about a lot of these country guys, these producers who like to pull their guns out all the time. Yeah, that was the only time I saw it. I know Phil Spector was notorious for it, but uh, that was the only time I saw it. And it was uh, class. It was a classic. Uh, 
I mean, you know, I remember I called the record label and they said, do you want us to come down here and get you out of there? And I'm like, no, I think I can survive this. I think, I, I think I got it under control. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah. Nonverbal communication. Exactly. So when you say he made a man out of you as a producer, what do you mean? Um, I was able to still finish a record with a guy who was fighting me mm. all the time and hand it into the record label and have it come out. It was on Electra Records, which is a major label. Yeah. And, um, you know, I saw it, I saw it all the way through. He tested me. He just, he just made me back up my convictions, I guess, mm-hmm. or, or what I thought was best for the record he would push against. And then I had a choice. I could either just buckle and do things his way, or I needed it, or I could stick to what I believe needs to be done for the record to come out great. You have to stick to your guns. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> does, that, does that happen very often that an album sort of fails at that stage where the producer and the artist, yeah, just aren't able to work that out? Oh, yes. Yeah, ah. yes. Um, uh, producing is a very interesting job yeah. uh, because you're dealing not you're, you're dealing with art and you're dealing with the production of art and the delivery of art, but you're also dealing with human beings who may be overconfident about one thing they're doing and insecure about another thing they're doing, and you don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, you have to set up a, a a good feeling in the studio, like a like an open yeah fe- feeling of communication. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure egos get in the way sometimes. Yeah. I have a question for you. Sure. Are you from Bloomington, Indiana? I am. I grew up way out on the west side of town. Wow, I love that place. Oh, I right. played there quite a yeah, I played there quite a few times. Uh Second Story, is that the name of the place? Yes, there? uh-huh. Yeah, Second Story. Oh, how cool. And uh I have some friends who went to uh, college there. Mm-hmm. It would be a good venue for you. People would really appreciate your type of music there. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, I, I played also on campus and um, whatever that theater is there that um, Dylan just played there recently. It looks like a faculty lounge or something. And I don't know. It's, <laughs> I forget what it's called. Yeah, it's in the, in the college, but great town. Yeah. It was a fun place to grow up for sure. Mm-hmm. Lots of music, right? I mean, between the mu- the music school where we just had so much fantastic classical music and opera and ballet but then you know that sort that culture really spawned a lot of other kinds of music so we just had we were exposed to just way more excellent extraordinary music than you would expect in a small town and also uh, the hoagie carmichael connection oh yeah mm-hmm. probably the most famous uh pop artist to come out of Bloomington, I would think. Yeah. And um, John Mellencamp lives not far away. So don't forget him. That's right. That's right. You know, I, like I said, I follow you on Facebook and you have amazing archive of your history with pictures and stories and recordings and stuff. Do you, do you have a favorite archive thing that you really enjoy doing? A favorite archive thing? Well, um, hmm, I don't know about a favorite because I'm yeah, I'm always moving on to something I'm I'm excited about as much as I was excited about the last thing. Um, one thing I'm doing right now is um, I'm compiling. This is going to sound 
uh, strange at first, but when the Beatles and Motown took over the charts in 1964, the word was that doo-wop was completely dead and erased from our culture, gone. But that is not true. I grew up outside of Philadelphia and Philadelphia is a, still is a doo-wop town. Mm-hmm. And hundreds of doo-wop records were still being recorded and released from 1964 up until 1967. And I'm in the middle of a project right now where I'm, I'm um, making a compilation of the best of that stuff, and I'm going to be releasing it as an album. So I'm, I'm knee-deep in that archive, like interviewing surviving members and trying to find the guys who bankrolled these records, like a guy who owned a barbershop and said, yeah, okay, I'll put out your, you know, I'll finance uh-huh. your record. Uh-huh. Maybe, we'll, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll all, you know, you know, become superstars or something, you know. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a completely Italian-American uh, situation. I grew up in, a, in an Italian-American neighborhood. Oh. When the Beatles came in, in 1964, my neighborhood didn't go for it immediately. The, the um, transformation took a while. I grew up basically in a greaser culture with doo-wop, being, doo-wop and dancing being what everything was about. Well, and they were British after all. Yeah. And Philadelphia. <laughs> hello. Yeah. You know. Right. It's like, the, you know, like <laughs> that's where we like firmly established ourselves as non-British. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> so the, yep. his, the history is long. The British are coming. Oh, yeah. It was, you know, you know what happened last time they came? <laughs> we kicked right. their ass. <laughs> oh, oh, kind of the, uh, the attitude, but, um, on the radio, you still heard doo-wop and they were still recording new doo-wop songs. And when I went started going to dances when I was really young, uh, you would never even know the Beatles existed. Yeah. No British Invasion was played at the dances. It was, Motown was played, but the rest was like, you know, old Frankie Lyman records and, uh, you know, stomp records and soul music. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm uh, right now in the middle of, a, as, as far as archiving, I'm deep into what I call doo-wop and exile right now. It sounds really cool. Yeah, really fun. What a what a fun trip back in time. Yeah, and it's sort of like, you know, I think I think the misconception about history is that like when the Civil War was over, it was just over. And the Union won and everybody behaved. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it probably took about five years for uh, a lot of that stuff to iron itself out. And that's true. Uh, Also, when you think about those um, Japanese soldiers in the Philippines who no one, no one told them the war was over. Yeah. And they thought they were still fighting and they were, it was like 1973 and they, you know, they're behind a bush with a gun. That's what these do up guys feel like to me is like they didn't get the memo somehow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though there wasn't a single do up song on the charts, they believed that, if they prevailed, they would get a hit. And I'm really intrigued by that, that true believer kind of mindset. Uh-huh. The faith. Yeah, the faith. Yeah. When I first came to California, I came from Upper Michigan. And um, I used to listen to the Mexican radio station that was down across the border, which powered such a huge signal. It went everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, the Huggy Boy show, which featured lots of a up and different types of music on it that was this it was just awesome and, and fascinating and really 
they cut some some places still kind of kept things going as long as they could. Yeah, there's a guy in Philadelphia who's still doing it. The Geeter with the heater. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's been on the radio since 1960, and he plays whatever he wants. He buys time on stations so he can play whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's legendary. And he has this amazing record collection of obscure doo-wop and hardcore R&B stuff. And he's still on the air. I'm really good friends with him. I sought him out. He was a mentor when I was a kid. I listened to him every night when I was a kid. Oh, wow. And um, I uh, sought him out and we're, we're really good friends now. And I've actually been helping with his archives because he's 81 now. Right before lockdown, I flew to Philadelphia and we went through all of his archives and I boxed them up and um, convinced the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to add them to their library. Oh, how cool. Yeah. And soon as soon as it's safe to travel and do things, I'm, I'm going to be kind of commuting to Cleveland to help uh, catalog the stuff with the uh, archivist there. Oh, what a great project. Gee, his legacy is amazing. It is. It's incredible. Yeah, that was back in the days when a radio show was a real radio show. I mean, people could do what they want for six or eight hours. I know. I know. I get one hour a week and I'm allowed to do exactly what I want. And anytime anybody complains, I, I always say the title of the show is The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that's, that's why I named that's why I named it that. It's like it's like, hello. You know, yeah, this is what I feel like playing. The title implies that that's what's going to happen. Leave me alone. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I feel like a radio show is like a new mixtape every week, really. I mean, and Jennifer and I are both big fans of the old mixtapes or, or, or mixed CDs. And your playlist is really quite diverse and really you make you have great choices. How do you get to pick your song? Do this come to you where you're figuring through records or you have a theme in mind? Or Well... If I do a theme show, I, I do serve a theme, but mostly it's um, what I what I feel like hearing at the time, you know. Um, and and the playlist looks a little schizophrenic on paper, uh, but it, when you listen to it, because I've, I I have a lot of experience as a musician and as a record producer, and when you're a record producer, you're the person who sequences the album. Uh-huh. So when you're put, putting an album together, it's okay that we have two up tempo songs in a major key. The third one should maybe be mid-tempo in a minor key. And then the fourth one should be maybe all about energy and less about melody. And then the fifth one should maybe be a ballad. And that's how you... So I have a lot of experience putting together and putting together set lists when I perform live too. So that talent I bring into putting the radio show together. So I'm just thinking like, what does the audience need a a break right now. I really like putting something lush, like a Henry Mancini piece after a Helen Wolf record, <laughs> because it's exactly what you need after like something that intense, instead of two intense songs in a row. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I, I really, um, I just kind of go, it's not a, it's not really intellectual. Like I'm not really using my conscious mind much when I'm working with music. I'm working on a kind of a, a I don't know, a subconscious level a lot of the time. It's always been that way for me. I don't really, uh, I think about it after I do it and I go, whoa, what just happened there? But like while I'm doing it, my brain um, is not really uh, engaged in a conscious way. 
I think that's why, you know, because if you look at look at the playlist, you would go, well, OK, just this, this is all over the place. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't even know if I could listen to that. You know, the Bonzo Dog Band after the Stooges, after Les Paul and Mary Ford and then Nina <laughs> Simone. It's like, what is this guy trying to prove? You know, but if you listen to it musically, the show moves almost like like a piece of like a like an extended piece of music with movements. Yeah. And that's how I hear it. And that's how that's like what I obey. I obey just that feeling, a musical feeling that this is where it needs to go. And uh, I don't question it much. Even when I and sure Jennifer have done those kind of things, it's it's a wide range of musical styles and mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. And that's to me, that's one of the best things about it is that you get to hear something new that you would normally hear or you or you've forgotten about. Mm-hmm to go back to something and you go, wow, I need to check that out again. I remember that years ago. Yeah. I was a big fan of freeform radio back in the early seven, late sixties, early seventies in Philadelphia. We had the Marconi experiment, which came on 1968. That came on the air. And I remember listening to the very first broadcast of that. I listened to it every night and there was only four hours of progressive radio per day in Philadelphia at that point. And then they went all format. And up until about 72, before the record business realized they could make big money off this, you know, freeform radio was great because it was ads for waterbeds and sandals. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and they would play like the entire album side, you know, of a, of a record by Spooky Tooth or something, you know. And I just love that informal, uh, and, and not only the, the generosity of the hosts wanting to share something that they're really excited about with their audience Mm -hmm. because it was their choice they were they were making the choices there was no uh format no playlist that they had to adhere to at that time so you knew that the guy or the woman that you were listening to was choosing this because she wants to share it with you because she likes it or he likes it and i i always loved that and that's what disappeared when you know by the mid-70s that wasn't happening anywhere yeah and I wanted to kind of, I wanted to get back into that. And uh, luckily, WEVL in Memphis gave me my first shot at doing this. And then that led to WXPN in Philadelphia. And then I'm, on, I'm now on 28 different stations. Oh, wow. That's great. Do you organize your playlist for that radio show ahead of time? I do. Yeah, <clears throat> I see. I do. Mm-hmm. So you're basically creating sort of a mixtape that you then play for people during that hour. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I guess, which, which I guess is what freeform radio is really, you know, assuming that they did it ahead of time. Right. And that they weren't sort of inspired at the moment. Yeah. To put something on. I have to confess that when I do a mixed CD, I do spend a lot of time on the transition. So the order of the songs I mean, one of the really, there are big fun things, big fun general things, right? Introducing to people's, the, to bands that they've surely never heard before. But there's also something about creating that experience of having a song follow another song. And so, yeah, it would be very hard for me to do that on the fly. Or, or I don't think it would be a very good result, I guess I should say. <laughs> it happens pretty quick for me. When I'm preparing a show, it it, it happens pretty quick, but I... I can I could see agonizing over it. Um, it's a, it, the the potential's there, and the temptation sometimes is there for me to to like 
doubt my choice and then think of a second one. I'm like, whoa, hold on now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's know? probably easier too for me because I do tend to have a theme for my CDs. And so, you know, there's just, and I have less to choose from. I, you know, I don't know music as well as you do. And so, you know, my database is smaller, but yeah, that that's the, it's an experience that you're trying to offer someone. Right. And so it really, mm-hmm. if, if people are having to follow a format or just being, God forbid, being handed a playlist, yikes. Yeah. I can't imagine doing radio in that fashion. Yeah. Um, no. So I've used a lot of your songs on my mixtapes, you know, they're just, they're fresh. They're like a timeline cleanser. They're different. Yeah. There's just a lot of things I like about them. The album that you're most probably most famous for, at least according to Wikipedia is the Rambler 65 album. Uh, And that's the one that uh, is known uh, a lot because it was recorded inside of a car. So tell us how that happened. Well, the idea for that record came about because I wanted to avoid a midlife crisis. Oh, and then a friend, a friend came over and saw me recording in my car, and he goes, "Dude, this is a midlife crisis." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's written all over it. If I've ever seen a midlife crisis, yeah, a forty-year-old guy, thirty-nine actually, turning forty who's moved his entire recording studio out to the driveway. This is a severe midlife crisis you're having. (laughs) Call it what (laughs) it is. (laughs) And of course, when you're having a midlife crisis, the, 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 you know, the main problem is that you are in denial that you're having a midlife crisis. That's that's part of the package, right? Yeah. That's the main part of the package. It's like, no, 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 I'm fine. You know, it's like, I'm good. What do you mean? Yeah, it's raining, <laughs> and uh, those are electrical cords running into the house, you know. <laughs> but uh, I got that idea. Um, I was working in a studio in Hoboken, and we were a fancy place too, with a really, you know, big live room. And we had we were doing a conga overdub, and the guy put the congas out there and started hitting them, and they were ringing in a really bad way, a lot of overtones. Oh. Oh, so we moved a couple baffles in and that, that didn't work. And then we were hanging blankets on the baffles, you know, mm-hmm. and I, as a joke, I said, you know, we could move those congas out to my, my rambler outside and record them. No problem. And it would sound great. Mm. And everybody laughed. And then I thought, Hey, I wonder, I wonder that's true. And, uh, that led to doing a sound. I had two Ramblers at the time, a 64 and a 65. And I did a sound check in both of them. And the 65 sounded better. <laughs> <laughs> it just did like, like the aging uh, upholstery or something in there. And that one sounded better. And I just got this idea. I thought, wow, has anyone ever recorded an entire album in a car before? Let me, let, let me do this. And so I moved my studio out of my house every day. I would move it out hook it up. And, and right around three 30, when kids were coming home from school, I would have to pack up and go back in because they would start teasing me and yelling, Hey, mister, what are you doing? You know, oh. shooting a video. Can we be in it? You know, uh-huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. the, neighborhood, the neighborhood and, freak. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, a year later I had to, I, well, I didn't have to move, but it was a good idea that I moved. <laughs> <laughs> it was good for the neighborhood that I moved. Um, but, but yeah, I recorded that just, it was basically as a project just to prove to myself I could do it. And I, you know, I, I finished it and I 
moved the equipment back inside and mixed it. And I played it for a label. A friend of mine has a label in Spain called Munster. And I sent him a tape and he immediately wanted to put it out. And then Rhino heard it and they wanted to put it out. And then we shot a video, the making of Rambler 65, which is out there somewhere on YouTube. It's like 27 minutes long or something like that. Yeah, that would be it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good film. I had not encountered that before. So yeah, listen up, uh, audience out there. Uh, Let's see. So it's called Full Show. I'll put a link to it. Rambler 65, Full Show. And yeah, it looks like it's about 27 minutes long. And it should have way more views than it does. This is really fun. And in fact, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Michael Nesmith, right? It kind of has that same vibe. Well, I could see that. Uh, He was an inspirational guy to me. Uh, You know, I, I, I stayed in touch with what he was doing, not in touch with him as a person, but, you know, with the elephant parts and then mm-hmm. earlier video stuff and, and all that, he was like always looking into the future and repo man, which, you know, great movie. Mm-hmm. Another guy kind of like Johnny Otis, where uh, multifaceted, artistic, ambitious, organized person who would mm-hmm. get ideas and actually finish them and put them out, you know, and have a, with Michael Nesmith, of course, the wry sense of humor mm-hmm. really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of comedy I like. And there's always a twist, like something a little odd going on with him. I, you know, my, my career has a lot of, a lot of that as well. You never know exactly what's, what's going to happen. I don't even know what's going to happen next, really. Right. I don't. Yeah. So it keeps things interesting. That's for sure. It's interesting to watch the show and see just the the logistics of what you're doing, the practicality of trying to have all those instruments in there, but it leads to some interesting sounds. I wondered if there were like there's a a shot of you tapping your foot and it's and it's sort of creating an interesting sound off the rambler, if I'm interpreting what I'm seeing correctly. Did you discover new sounds like that by working in the car? Oh yeah, that foot tapping is my my foot on the floor of the uh, passenger side seat. Well, actually, I'm in the back seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the equipment was in the front seat, and I was sitting in the back seat. And I would reach over and engineer and turn the tape deck on. And this is real to real tape. This is not digital anything. You know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I had a mixing board up there, and and uh, and I had uh, a real to real tape, and I would plug in. And the the greatest invention was when I have I had my guitar amp. And I needed an isolation booth for my guitar amp, so I put it in the trunk of the car, and I screwed out the uh, back tail light. I took the back tail light out so I could run a, a mic cord in. <laughs> of course. And it worked. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It sounds great. It sounded great. And uh, the neighborhood couldn't hear it because it was isolated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a great project. I, uh, I learned a lot, but I also uh, got a chance to just do something so out of, out of the ordinary, you know, when you're working on something that is that odd conceptually, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're onto something while you're doing it. A lot of times you don't realize until afterwards what you're working on. Mm. But um, obviously, you know, when you're carrying everything out every morning, you're connected to the project in just about every way you can be connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I've noticed you, you like to do kind of unique things once in a while, and I, I'm a collector myself, and I've been fascinated lately by the, the unique pressings of the multi-groove records. 
And I, I know you produced one of the early ones I had, and that was the Pink Slip Daddy EP. Yeah, yeah. Why did you want to do the um, the double groove on that? That was um, actually more. Uh, I'm not. I don't know if you're familiar with Pamara Del Ram. She um, is a radio show host on uh, Little Stevens Underground Garage. Okay. And she was the drummer in Pink Slip Daddy, and that was her record label. I forget where she got the idea. The Monty Python record, Tie Handkerchief, to me was one of the first ones I'd heard about it. And I think that was before yours by a little bit. I think that was where she got the idea. And to explain to the listeners, you might want to explain what that means, because it's a little complex. Well, there's, there's different types of records out there that have been made where it, when you put the needle on the, on the groove, you might hear one song, you might hear a, a different song. And because the grooves are, are tight together, you never know which one you're going to hit. And then it's like, oh, I thought this was this other song. And it's like, wait, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? And it's just a way to, I don't know, have more fun with the music and with the vinyl. It's a very weird thing. It's a yeah. very weird thing. Like with the Monty Python, there are two side twos, right? Right. Is that how it is? Like on a Tuesday, you put the needle down and you'll hear, you know, side <laughs> two. And you're like, okay. And then, you know, by Friday, you put the needle down. It's like, hold it. What happened? That's completely different than the side two I heard the other day. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Firesign Theater. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, I, I know that um, different artists have experimented with, with that. And I think Jack White did something that like, took it to the extreme with one of his couple records back, some kind of alto edition. And it, it had different grooves. It had grooves under the, under the label. So you take the label off and you could play something that was down there. And it, it was, it was like a crazy, crazy thing, but it was just kind of fun that people just still have that, that playfulness with the vinyl. Yeah. It's great. Well, well Jack White is definitely Mr. Vinyl. I mean, <laughs> if anybody, if anybody is the ambassador for vinyl, in our culture now, it would be Jack White. I mean, he's got that whole pressing. He's got a mastering lab down there and everything. Oh. So is it the case that physically there's enough room on the piece of plastic to accommodate a completely separate set of songs? Is that how that works? You got me. Oh. <laughs> oh no, it's just magic. Don't ask, don't ask, don't tell. Okay. My... <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah. It's Tuesday have, or Friday. No <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have no idea how any of this stuff works, to be honest, but, uh, but it does. That's <laughs> and neat. It, it's a great thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, since you're, I would imagine you're quite the record hound. You, you must have a fairly substantial collection. Um, where do you find your records these days? Well, these days I have not been buying records because of the pandemic, because buying, I never really got into buying uh, by mail uh, on eBay or any anywhere. I really like going to record stores and looking through this stuff. And I'm a big fan of the 99 cents bin. I go straight there first because you never know what you're going to find in there. Uh -huh. And I like buying records by people I've never heard of based on the cover. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a big, that's a big one for me. And I've been doing that since I was a kid. But lately there is a record store out here called record surplus where Ronnie from the muffs, the band, the muffs, hmm. he works there. And so I go there and hang out with him 
and then I uh, go through their vinyl. <clears throat> and they've been open through most of the lockdown. We had to wear a mask and, and stand outside and wait for the you know the, the customer before us to leave and everything. But um, they kept it going. But anywhere there's records, you know, a thrift store, uh, record stores, used bookstores that might have two boxes of records way in the back. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been collecting my whole life. And collecting is actually kind of a fancy word. Uh, I'm a music nut before I'm a record nut. Like I don't, I don't collect records for value. I have no idea what anything is is uh, valued at in my collection. I have, I have no clue. I buy it and I play it, so I'm probably devaluing my collection by playing the records too much. Oh wow! Because I love the because Perish. I love the music too much. Yeah, perish the, <laughs> perish the thought. You should enjoy something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I'm not a record collector in the. Um, Traditional, well, not traditional, but in in the sense that you know, I understand the value of anything, or that I'm a completist of any category or anything like that. My record collection is all over the place. I have to tell you, Ben, that's how I found you. Was I used to do the same? Just go to used stores and look for things that that I had never heard of, but looked interesting, and that's how I found you. Wow! Yeah. So yeah, there there can be all kinds of gems in there. Yeah, I discover all kinds of people the same way. I just go, you know, the, the, and the song titles, like my first album when I put it out, I made sure we had the lyrics on the back mm. because my songs are unusual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that first album has, has looking for a 7-Eleven and I dig your wig on it. Uh-huh, now, yes. Yeah, that's fine. Uh-huh. Those are not normal song titles. And um, I remembered, you know, some of my favorite albums. I would buy records if the lyrics were on the back of, of a cover and the lyrics looked interesting, whether it was Randy Newman or or whoever, I would buy the album if the lyrics looked interesting, yeah. not having heard the music. And so I insisted on that in the very beginning. And then, of course, the, C- the CD took over and that whole idea was not... You couldn't look at lyrics in a record store anymore. It was in a booklet inside somewhere where you were not going to get a chance to see it yeah. uh, in, unless you bought it. So are you more into the lyrics or more into the, the melody? Do you have a, a favorite part or is it kind of just both? Both. Um, I write when I'm walking or driving. Hmm. I don't write with a guitar in my hands. Hmm. Uh, I usually have the song pretty much completed before I even pick up a guitar and figure out what the chords are going to be. The melody and the lyrics come to me uh, simultaneously. But, I, but I, I do start with a title. Most of the time I'll have a title. I'll go, wow, that's a great title for a song. I wonder what that could be about. And then I work backwards from the title. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So while you're walking or driving, you're creating the melody in your head? Yeah. Oh, that must be unusual. Don't. Don't you think that, I mean, that's usually I hear people say they're noodling around on the piano or the guitar. Have you found that your process is different from others? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I know Arthur Alexander, who um, is an artist that I produced. I'm not sure if you're, are you guys familiar with Arthur? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was the first guy to have a hit out of Muscle Shoals. And he wrote Anna for the, that the Beatles did. And you better move on at the Stones did. Ah. And a great and a great song called Every Day I Have to Cry which was a hit for uh, Steve Alamo in America. 
but it was also c- covered by the McCoys and Dusty Springfield and everybody has done every, every day I have to cry. Uh-huh. Uh, he didn't play an instrument. He wrote when he was oh. walking, just like I do, but he never learned how to play an instrument. So he would have to get with a piano player or a guitar player and they would figure out what chords need to be behind his melodies. Right. I don't, I don't know if it's unusual or not, but that's, I started writing songs before I could really play guitar well. And I started out as a drummer. Yeah. And it's hard to write songs as a drummer, you know? Right. Uh, it's like, doom, bada, doom, That doesn't sound like a song to me. I don't know. <laughs> Big drum <laughs> I don't, sound. I don't, hear a, I don't hear a chorus. I need a, you know, <laughs> was, okay, was that verse two or a bridge? I can't tell the difference. You know? Right. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So I had to learn how to play guitar in order to write songs. Uh, it will basically to transcribe what I'd already written in my head while I was walking to school or, um, and I had a job as a landscaper. Like when I got out of high school, I didn't go to college. I got a job at a knitting mill for about a year and a half. And then I became a landscaper for about five years and greatest job in the world for daydreaming. Yeah. Because you can do your job and think, and think about something else all day long. So I'm either weeding garden beds or I'm mowing lawns or, I rode the sit-down tractor for a while, you know, and I was, you know, shoveling mulch. And all day long, your mind can go wherever it wants to go. So I would write like five songs a day. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I would have to memorize them because I, I mean, it wasn't carrying around a tape recorder. And I, you couldn't call home and sing into your answering machine yeah, because right. it was before answering machines. They didn't uh-huh. exist yet. And I would have to memorize it. And then when I got home, I would pick up my guitar and sing it into a tape recorder. I'd figure out what the chords would be or just sing it a cappella into a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And that's how I I began writing. And uh, when I became more proficient as a guitar player and was in an, in an environment where I could actually spend more time with my guitar, I still write the old way. I write in my head first. It's all, it all comes together in my head. Okay. Well, my mind is blown. Yeah. Imagine, do you ever get home and then realize you've forgotten it? Oh yeah, definitely. There are some songs that um, I failed to remember before I was able to transcribe them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're probably out there somewhere waiting for us. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting too, because sometimes I'll sing one into a tape recorder and then I don't think about it again. And then maybe a year later, I'll listen and go, oh, that's actually a good song. I should finish that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> sure. Or I should fine tune that. Yeah, like I don't even remember writing them, really. Um, it comes real fast. When I was doing music for TV, it was um, I was really lucky because I could write incredibly fast and deliver, which is required. Because if you don't do that, you get fired. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> it was... Uh, <laughs> It was perfect for like the immediacy of my process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a gun to your head, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, do you have a favorite, um, like all time favorite record that you might have bought when you were young or discovered at some point that's like your prized possession? Well, there is a 45 by Mickey Lee Lane. I don't know if you have ever heard of him. No. He had a minor hit in 1965 called Shaggy Dog. Oh. And I saw him on Dick Clark. It recently 
surfaced on YouTube, his appearance on the Dick Clark on American Bandstand in 1965, where he performed, well, he lip syncs Shaggy Dog. And I saw that live on TV when it happened. And I flipped out. There was something about the beat of that record and his energy as a performer and the vocal. So I went to the local appliance store and, um, and ordered the record, which took two weeks to come in. This is back, you know, before immediate gratification. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> and it was still on the radio for a while. And then it was disappearing from the radio because it never made it like past number 38, I think, on the charts. And then I went down to the appliance store and, and the record was in. I gave him 79 cents or whatever it was and took it home. And I must have played it, oh, you know, over a thousand times. And <laughs> it's in every single note of that record is ingrained in my brain and also has a special place in my heart because I found his address in a teen magazine and I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back. And I was a 10 year old kid who got a, who got a a letter from a rock and roll star. That's exciting. For me, that was when I knew there was only one direction for me to go. And unfortunately another seven or eight years of school was ahead of me <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and parents mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like I knew what I wanted to do when I was 10 and I was pretty resentful, but everything that kept me from doing it, which, you know, was like everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, was, it was tough. I was really ready to be a full-time musician. Unfortunately, by the time I graduated high school, Jethro Tull and Emerson Lake and Palmer were like the big thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And my style of three-chord rock and roll was not in vogue at all. And I had to I had to wait. And so I didn't start my career until I was 27. I actually led a, an obscure life as just a, a guy writing songs, mm-hmm. playing with some friends and, uh, you know, uh, experimenting with recording, but I wasn't pursuing it seriously as a profession until I was 27. Have you ever covered um, Shaggy Dog? I have. Pink Slip Daddy has, actually. We cut a, a 45 of it oh. um, many years ago. Uh, I don't know. I forget what label it came out on. We were. It's been a gypsy career, you know, as far as what <laughs> labels. Like, uh, I, can't, I, I, I had a manager for a while, and he finally quit. And he says, I can't, I can't manage you. And I go, why? And he goes, because I don't know how to commission a gypsy career. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good name for a band right there, or a song. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and i know what he meant because like i would my records are on a bunch of different labels mm-hmm. and they might be on a different label in europe than they are in america and maybe it's um surf music or maybe it's country or maybe i'm producing something or maybe i'm it's like i'm all over the place and it's kind of hard to manage for a professional yeah. manager who actually cares about making money i'm like the, the worst guy because i'm <laughs> i'm inconsistent as far as you just want to have fun <laughs> I just exactly. I'm exactly. I want to have fun, and I want to follow what, what you know, what my interests are. Like we all do, really. And really, by following your interests and following your own path, you can really have more fun, but also really grow more and and learn more about different things. Well, that's the idea: is to always be learning, always improving your mind, always expanding your horizons. And that's the end of my motivational speech. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm going to go do something right now. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I'm, I'm fired up. Exactly. 
Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us today. It's been so much fun to talk to you. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Any uh, websites you want to refer them to or upcoming tour dates or really anything at all? Um, I have a record, a new album coming out on Record Store Day. Oh, um, Which I believe is April 12th. The name of the album is The World of Ben Bond. Aha. And uh, I play all the instruments on this one. Nice. All new songs. And it's coming out on vinyl on Record Store Day. And then it will come out on CD and, and digital about a month after that. Record Store Day is always a fun, fun day to go to the store. Yeah, I was really happy that they chose me. They contacted me and asked me if I had anything. And I was like, yes, I do, actually. <laughs> ah, perfect. The timing was perfect. And I was really happy to be, I'm really happy to be part of it. It's the first time I've ever been part of it. So, and they're very, very nice people, very organized. It, you know, it's a crusade for them. They are, they're really seriously into it. And as far as websites, do not go to benvon.com because I, accidentally allowed that to expire and someone is now what they call um, website squatting oh, no. <laughs> and they are pretending they're me right now oh. on benvon.com i my, my official website is benvon.org oh. that's the one that i control but someone is pretending to be me and I'm, I'm actually in the process of trying to figure out how to legally make this stop asap see so i know what's going to happen your listeners are going to go to the the, the wrong one first just to see how bad it's gotten <laughs> <laughs> it it does have some uh peculiarities the benvon.com it definitely does okay well yeah good to know i think this is the first time this has happened on the show where we've told someone not to go somewhere <laughs> but i'll, yeah, put, yeah, I'll put the link to the right one <laughs> What is a person on benvon.com who's claiming to be me um, blogging about my favorite TikTok videos, and I still don't even know what TikTok is. <laughs> yes, that's what so. I mean. There were some eccentricities. I was like, huh, this is interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that. I don't. Yeah, th that's not me. Aha. Yeah. So that, uh, that, that clears up some of those mysteries. I was curious about that. Well, again, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been lovely. I really appreciate your time and the work that you do. You are welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you for accepting. We really appreciate it. Awesome. It was great. It's a wonder, mm, it's a wonder, it's 
wonder Anyone survives The clouds in the sky Just make me cry I must be too sensitive for this world I don't think I can last until these bad times pass I must be too sensitive for this world Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. 
and give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <laughs>